Hello and welcome to We Heard Wonders, the music podcast that's getting better all the time. I <sighs> couldn't get much worse based on the reviews we've had so far. You just, of course, we've had some really lovely reviews already. Yeah, no, none more so than from J-Man Toon Fan, who I'm going to shout out. We love you, J-Man. We love you, J-Man, whoever you are, for the lovely review he gave us on um, Apple Podcasts. I'm going to read a bit of the review he gave us. Mm-hmm. You ready for this, Andrew? He says, like the guys, that's us, I can relate to the thrill of browsing in various music stores in Glasgow, and when money allowed, picking up many a bargain to increase my library of music. I believe Ray Davies of the Kinks said something typically poetic like, seeing someone else's music collection is like looking into their soul. There you go. That's this the, guy's better than us. That's the kind of review that we want when they're actually referencing other musicians. Yeah, definitely. Great. And we would love it if um, anyone who's listening right now, if you would like to subscribe to our podcast wherever you have listened to it, so on, po- on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, and if you consider giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, that would help so much as well. Absolutely, and get, getting us followed as well on Instagram and at, Twitter. And Twitter at We Heard Wonders would yeah. be fantastic. We'd love that. So, we really want to grow this audience um, and have you guys interact with us as much as possible, please. So, do send questions. Andrew has a massive musical brain. Um, so, ask him questions and see what he thinks about things. I have a more limited palette, but you can definitely <laughs> ask me stuff too. Um, and we just love to hear what you want to. Yeah, just any suggestions about albums or artists that you'd like us to cover. If you've got any music that you'd like us to have a wee listen to as well, we'd be more than happy to check it out. Fire it in and we will give our honest opinions, guaranteed. We won't pull any punches if they need to be thrown. We'll, we'll definitely say what we've got to say. Um, so yeah, so that takes us to today's podcast. I'm really excited about this one. Oh, I'm so pumped. Yeah. <laughs> it's an absolute masterpiece, Forever Changes, um, by love. Let's get into it. Let's get into the opening track. Alone again, or Thank you. 
So that was the opening track of Forever Changes, Alone Again, or... So maybe we should start by talking just about how we kind of came to the album. See, before Ian, we do it, see, before we do that, right, Alone Again, or... Or what? Yeah. <laughs> what does that actually mean? I don't know. Well, I have, yeah, I've, well I've got some thoughts about it. You've that. got some thoughts. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Well, so how, how, just... how we came to the album. Uh, well, mine is a kind of... I mean, if people have listened to the uh, the Mercury episode, they're going to be hearing the same uh, the same kind of stuff from me. Basically, when I was a student, um, I, I'd I'd say in terms of um, you know when this album was kind of at its critical peak, it probably was around the time that we were getting yeah, into like reading these, these magazines. I think it it seemed to me as if as if their their kind of reputation grew throughout the nineties. Um, so there was a few things that happened. So. After Lee started kind of uh, playing live again, yep. there was the Rhino box set that came out, which uh, gave it a kind of retrospective overview of the whole career. And there were plans to go on a world tour as well. Um, so all that was happening in the mid-90s. There was a lot of bands as well that were being influenced by them around that time. Know, Jesus, was, Mary Chain, Prime yeah, Scream. I'm thinking like Shaq as well, people yeah. like that. Uh, the High Lamas and things like that. Um, and then what happened after Lee got jailed? Yeah. for like six years we'll probably come back to that at some point Yeah, but um, he came out in 2001 and that's kind of a, as I say that's the time that we started really getting into yeah, our, I guess it our must magazines have, must have been around about that time um, I do remember where I bought this record which is um, something we put in our intro which is FOP um, yeah. Glasgow FOP and well this is a classic fiver five quite album and I remember actually being in FOP and um, I was like shall I say, taking a study break. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So I was walked down from uni and I was down in Glasgow Fop, down on whatever street that is. I don't even know. Is it Jamaica Street, I think it was? Byers Road. Byers Road. No, no, no. Oh, it was no. In, in the city centre. Yeah. Irrelevant. Union Street. Union Street is the one. Jamaica Street. Um, yeah, so I was down at that one and um, there's a guy who worked there who regularly chatted to me about music and, and bands and stuff and he actually, I went to buy Love Forever Changes but he actually chatted to me about it for a while and he said, Oh, do you, do you know this band? Like, have you heard this before? And I said no. And he was like, "Oh, you're gonna really like this. This yeah. is like amazing." Um, and he was right. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy was right. Uh, um, yeah. So, um, what do we say? What, I don't know what you say about this album. It's it's 1967. It's the summer of love, but it's not. It's not flower power. It's it's not endlessly kind of uh, optimistic all the way through. It's got a real cynical core paranoid core right yeah. in the center of it um if you were to look at the cover and as you say like 67 you would just assume it's the kind of ultimate summer of love album but it's really not and you know in a lot of ways in, in 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 totality as well i don't know if this is something i should say at the end of this podcast but i'll say it now because it's in my mind um when i listened to the 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 1967 summer of love album which everyone loves uh sergeant peppers mm. right the thing that I, people praise about Sgt Pepper is its massive variety, right? So across 
across the 12 or 13 tracks. Basically everything, apart from the Sergeant Pepper reprise, is completely different from the thing that came before. And it doesn't sound really all that much like the Beatles' um, previous work. It's, it's pretty original stuff. So you've got like the, the, the Raga track, the George Harrison one, and then you've got... Um, you know things like when I'm 64 that Paul wrote when he yeah. was 14 and stuff and so it's all over the map whereas this is quite a tight focused album it's got an, like a huge number of influences there and lots of different musical styles but it's it, very concise it's concise especially compared to a lot of the stuff that the American bands were doing because they love to to wig out and jam that horrible word yeah. <laughs> when, it, when it's done badly yeah. but yeah this is a really concise album 12 tracks 40 odd minutes yeah and it's it, really does tell a kind of it sort of tells a story in a way I think but it's it's like a lot of threads of a story um, and it's one of those ones where I don't like to ascribe too much like too much about what we know about Arthur Lee to what we know about this record but it does seem that his life and yeah. this record are so closely intertwined with each other that it'd be almost impossible to you know pick them apart like when we were chatting about Mercury Rev last week I, I did say or a couple of weeks ago I did say like you know, I would like to just listen to this album divorced from my knowledge of Mercury Rev because mm-hmm. I just like the record so much. I don't think you could do that with this. No, I think, yeah, you're right. It's And we'll, we'll get into that as well. But yeah, they're, they're very intertwined and just his whole kind of attitude towards what was going on in 67. Yeah. Like it's very important, the fact that, you know, they weren't in San Francisco, they were in LA. Yeah. And it's a very different mindset. Some of the drugs they were taking as well, there was, you know, you've got, all this LSD acid being dropped yep. in uh, San Francisco, whereas they're doing speed and heroin. Yep. So there's a very different kind of mindset that's fueling it as well. Yeah, and they were sitting high up in the Hollywood Hills, <laughs> um, sort of looking down on, on, on Hollywood in 1967. And you can really tell... Sitting on the hillside watching all the people die. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an amazing album. Um, definitely an all-time classic from my point of view. Um so for this first track, Alone Again, or um, what I like about this track, since we're going to talk about this, um, is it starts with this like absolutely incredible mariachi guitar. Um, and talking about that time when I was in FOP buying it and the guy said, oh, you're really going to really enjoy this. I did not anticipate the first thing I would hear would be, you know, Spanish-influenced yep. mariachi guitar. Did not expect that. Um and yet, that's that's what it is, and it's it then moves into a, you know a sort of more kind of traditional acoustic rock type thing with the shuffling rhythm, um, but it immediately tells you this isn't flower power. Um, no. it's much more inward looking. It's brassy as well. It's got yeah. a mariachi trumpet. As mariachi well. trumpet as well. Yeah, it's a, what a track. Oh, yeah. what, a, what an album opener. It is it's beautiful. Yeah. Apparently, they were originally going to do it as a banjo, but they couldn't play the banjo well enough. Ah. So um, Johnny Johnny Echoes, the lead guitarist, he apparently was just plucking um, the flamenco guitar, and somebody yep. said, "Well, why don't you just do that? Why don't you just do that?" And but it but it brings a completely different flavour to it. It's such a such a, a great feel um, that it opens the record, and they, they do. There's a bit of that mariachi flamenco style stuff uh, dropped on various tracks, but it's not never more evident than it is here. I don't think. No. Nope. Um, yeah, and it really that I mean, obviously they're they're a racially diverse band and then they're just kind of like pulling in these influences from all over the place I've got an amazing quote I don't know if you've heard this quote before from Arthur Lee um, where he described himself as a black American imitating a white Englishman meaning Mick Jagger 
imitating a black American, <laughs> um, which I think pretty much <laughs> summarises. Um, so cool. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So you were saying something about the title earlier, and you're going to mention alone again, or yeah, I think that just the, it just kind of sums up the the kind of strange atmosphere to 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 some of this album. Like yep. And some of it's just a bit kind of elliptical, and you don't, you're not quite sure what it means. And mm-hmm. it's the same with and more again as well. It's just what what does that mean? More you of know? what? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's just a strange edge. I, I, I love the writer Bob Stanley, and he was talking about this album, and he said he was comparing it to uh, the Manson family. Mm-hmm. Um, might get to the Manson family, so there's a connection there as well. Of course, yeah. But um, he was talking about the Manson family. Apparently, one of the things they did with Dennis Wilson was just to mess with his head. They would break into his flat when he was sleeping and move like three or four objects and then leave again. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Bob Stanley was suggesting that this album's a bit like that. It's 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 kind of like a folk rock album, but there's just things that are just a little bit off of and a place, bit strange, yeah. and a bit askew, and I think the title's going to play into that as well. Definitely, yeah. I was thinking that about the track Old Man when I was listening to it again. I was sort of imagining that um, Arthur Lee or you know whoever it is that's the, the, the person talking in the song, whoever the lyrics are, are speaking, whoever's point of view they're speaking from, mm-hmm. might in fact just be projecting forward into what it's going to be like when they're old mm-hmm. um, and again that like if that is right that sort of perspective shift is kind of like what this album's really sort of about it's like all, you know looking at things on a constantly shifting yeah. moving I mean even the type forever changes um, doesn't, yeah. even, doesn't even make perfect sense forever changes as a phrase but it's the, the idea of constant motion and shifting all the time so let's listen to a house is not a motel. At my house I've got no shackles You can come and look if you want to Through the halls you'll see the mantles Where the light shines dim all around you And the streets are paved with gold And if someone asks you You can call my name You're just a thought that someone somewhere somehow feels you should be here And it's so for real to touch, to smell, to feel, to know where you are here And the streets are paved with gold and if someone asks you, you can call my name You can call my name I hear you calling my name Transfusions, the news today will be the movies for tomorrow, and the waters turn to blood. And if you don't think so, go turn on your tub. 
And if it's mixed with mud, you see it turn to gray. Then you can call my name. I hear you calling my name. So that was the second track on Forever Changes, and it's the first one that really introduces the anti-war message, which is quite um, prevalent over the, the whole album, really. And there's that line, the, the news today will be the movies for tomorrow. The water's turned to blood, and if you don't think so, go turn on your tub. Um, which really kind of sums up what was kind of going on in, in Afrolee's head at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty gruesome lyric, that about the bathtub, isn't it? Um, and it's the kind of thing you might dream up if you're living in like the, the home of a former horror movie star, Bela Lugosi, um, high up in the Hollywood Hills, it's a, it's a kind of freaky thing to say. Um, so yeah, the track itself, the instrumentation of this track is more straight rock and roll than, it's more like the Rolling Stones say than the first record, yeah. the first uh, track on the album, sorry, which has uh, got that mariachi flamenco style influence. Um, the arrangement is kind of like circular, um, the track sort of the composition really is circular so the track begins and it re repeats to this same place over and over until it gets to the end of the track where we have this uh, this quite significant guitar solo and I sense we're going to disagree about this guitar solo Andrew I really like the guitar solo I think it's stinging I think it rocks I think it does exactly what it needs to do it's the Ron seal of guitar solos it's getting across that, that, that kind of anger that Mm. That's in the lyric, I think. It does, and, it, it's, and it's not controlled. It is just, yeah, it's just. It's letting itself go. I feel I'm feeling persuaded by what you're saying. I think that um, for me, it it's just a bit stiff. It's not very live, um, and like Arthur Lee and and Jimi Hendrix were were you know closely associated for you know a number of years. In fact, did Arthur Lee not sort of suggest that Jimi Hendrix had stolen his clobber it's still his style yeah yeah um and, but, and the lead guitarist played with hendrix for a bit as well when, yeah. he, when he was jimmy james when he was jimmy james and this um this guitar solo here uh, is just a bit it's a bit stiff i think that's the best way i've got it's, it's repetitious but as you're saying um you know when it's trying to get across this particular mood it certainly does that um and i like the part where it's almost like it, it's too angry to be played well yeah, almost. It's, yeah, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm so furious, I can't play the notes properly. Yeah, and it's when he when it gets to the sort of end of the repeated part, and then it's maybe I think it's dubbed. So I think there's you know three or four guitar parts playing on top of each other, all kind of screaming on top, and then it just fades it's out. It's Johnny it? Echoes playing with himself actually. Oh. Apparently, like he he played the first solo, 
and then Arthur Lee, but they they couldn't play it back in in the in the room. Yep. So Arthur Lee had to listen along to the original track and move his arms about to like imitate where it what was going on, what where it was, and they had to play another one. So that's that's probably why it's a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I also the the thing that really blows my mind as well as a musician is when I think on the absolutely ridiculous rudimentary equipment like this and Sergeant Pepper and Pet Sounds are recording. It's insane. It's absolutely crazy. (laughs) I mean, like we are we are sitting here recording a podcast where we've basically got two microphones, right, Mm. and we've got a laptop sitting in between us recording it. Now that is like light years away from what from what love had to record forever changes and we still can you know it's still hard for us to produce uh, uh, produce this so uh, god knows i mean it was it was an act of will i think insane, to record yeah. like this more almost as much as the 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 musical skill and the genius writing that went into these these classic albums it's really a, a force of will to, to actually mm. make them happen <laughs> so many things going on and so many clever production techniques um so yeah, I really love this track. This track is one of the first ones. Uh, guitar solo, we'll put to the side. Not, guitar solo, notwithstanding, this is one of the first tracks in the record where you really start to think these guys are great musicians. Like the drumming and the bass on yeah. this track are, you know, just f- incredible. Um, the very influential band, I think, not just from the point of view of, you know, the the paranoid lyrics and the, the kind of psychedelic and the atmosphere of the album, but this is just this is a blueprint for. For future bands to follow, like with the with the kind of virtuosity that's going on here, yeah. it's understated as well. It's not um, for the sake of it, you know. There's not fifteen minute, you know, guitar solos and drum solos and all that stuff. Um, prog had not yet really been invented after <laughs> all, but um, but it, you can see where you can see how this has become so influential yeah. as a record. It's just the growth as well that they've managed to to come through in the la- in, in a year. So the first two albums were nineteen sixty six, yeah, and Decapo. I mean, they were just the year before. And I like those albums as for what they are. You know, the the first one's a really good kind of garage punk kind of nugget style album. The second one, uh, maybe we can get into maybe get into like just how psychedelic you actually think Forever Changes is. I would argue that maybe the Capo is a more psychedelic album as yeah. we, as we kind of understand it. Yeah. Um, but I really like that album, but it, it is a little bit more. You can still see the the garage roots there, whereas with this this is very sophisticated folk rock really and baroque, baroque pop what's the track um, which ends with the it was all chopped up the sound of it yeah it's, the, it's that uh, the good humour man he sees everything in this or something like that yeah the good humour man he sees everything like this <laughs> so the last few seconds of, of that track are um, you know the chopped up and I, I think I'm speculating here um, but I think it's the sim- a similar technique that George Martin the producer used on um, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, the track from Sergeant Peppers, where you know it's been recorded on reel-to-reel tape, and then it's literally with scissors and sticky tape chopped up and then stuck back together. And on this particular track, the ending gives a really unsettled, uh, unsettling feel. Um, it doesn't act rhythmically at all; no. it breaks all the rhythm. That's yeah, been going it's on just top. another example of just uh, things are just a little bit off. Yeah, bit. things aren't as they maybe should be. <laughs> Um, so yeah, should we just listen to that, the ending of that track right now? Sure. Summertime's here, and look at their flowers everywhere in the morning, in the morning, la da da, da 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 da. Choo-choo, choo-choo, choo-choo. 
So yeah, if you've never heard that track before and you're just listening to that ending for the first time, it is kind of like unexpected and unsettling. Yeah, I was really grateful that I had that on CD for the first time because if it was on my record player, I'd be like, what is going on <laughs> with my setup? Yeah, so we were kind of saying earlier before we before we started recording that maybe that's kind of like emblematic of who Arthur Lee is, you know, that sort of off-kilter, you know, slightly ahead of the game type of personality, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh, apparently, John, Johnny Eccles, so they were they were friends from childhood. They were at school together. And apparently, uh, jo- Johnny Eccles says that, that uh, Alfred Lee was always known as the toughest kid in the neighbourhood. Um, I can imagine that. Yeah. And he, 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 they were, he was originally born in Memphis, and his, his dad was a musician, and his mother was a teacher. And then it was when they divorced that he, he moved to, to LA. So I don't want to be an amateur psychologist, but I think maybe that divorce a big impact on him and apparently only he ever only ever saw his dad three times that's that's you know i actually never heard that fact before i don't want to play like um social historian if you're not going to play amateur psychologist okay. but i think i mentioned racially diverse earlier on mm-hmm. and i think um so arthur lee's i mean we're in danger here with two white guys in our 30s in glasgow right what 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 do i know about this i've done very little right yeah. but I think it's remiss not to talk about Love as being a racially diverse band. This album does have a flavour of um, racial inequality on it. It's something Arthur Lee did was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess those maybe those two things, whilst we're maybe not absolute experts, can't say with confidence, they, they clearly play a part in what this album is. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, apparently as well, like later on, people were trying to suggest that he was you know, proto-punk, the first punk rocker in town kind of thing, and he yeah. said, um, I ain't going to be nobody's bitch or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I get, yeah, he's just really, he's into this kind of idea of just being tough. <laughs> yeah, and I think we, we were chatting as well about, or I was chatting about the track towards the end of the album, uh, Bummer in the Summer, and talking about being a kind of individualist, um, you know, uh, you know, having their own kind of stylings. Bummer in the Summer to me, the first thing I wrote down when I listened to it again was, the Dylan-esque delivery and the mm. Dylan-esque sort of feeling of the whole the whole record. So I wonder, it's not something I know about, but I wonder if Dylan was an influence on um, Arthur Lee in this record. Certainly the the, the lyrics are, are maybe more, I mean, Dylan's all about mm. weird metaphors. What's my favourite? Yeah. The favourite Dylan weird metaphor is uh, jewels and binoculars hang from the coattails of something something like that. What track is that? It's from uh, Blonde on Blonde, I think. Visions of Johanna. It's for, why did you know that? <laughs> I don't know why you knew that. But um, yeah, so Dylan's all about those like epic metaphors. Yeah. Well, I don't well, think well, the, the big band for love were the birds. And yes. that's so so yeah, so Dylan through the birds probably yeah. made so its way. The birds um type of psychedelia is is on this record as mm-hmm. well. Um I couldn't maybe pinpoint it, I don't know where I mean exactly, but just the general feeling overall um is a bit I can see that, yeah. I mean, the birds would do songs by Carol King and Danny Goffin and 
They've got links to the Wrecking Crew, who yeah. are also on this record as yeah, well. Yeah, and the work of the Wrecking Crew on the track, um, the Daily Planet, I think is... Yeah. Uh, is oh man, the bass, the drums. The drums. The drums. Just the rhythm, yeah, rhythm section. Now, I think, well, let's listen to a bit of the Daily Planet. Um, why not? Because it's real good. Let's listen to the intro of Daily Planet, because there's a lot to say about it. Okay, so that's the intro to um, The Daily Planet, which is one of my favourite tracks on this. Um, it's a superb track. It's a great track. So when we said, when I, when I sort of knew the Wrecking Crew were on here, right? So I'm listening for Hal Blaine's drums, which are fantastic. And then I'm listening to Daniel Kay's bass, and I'm thinking, wow, that's a really great bass part. So when I was reading about this yesterday, turns out she didn't play the bass on this. Really? Yeah, so that the acoustic guitar intro that we just listened to there, that's Carol Kay, who apparently during the recording wow. session moaned because um, that was a painful part to play on her fingers it's like a lots of sliding you can tell it's, yeah, she's, you a, she's attacking it she's probably yeah. attacking it and it's, it's part of it gives it it's um, it gives it it's energy that yep. acoustic guitar at the start of the track so I can see why she was annoyed about it <laughs> but yeah Daily Planet's um, oh it's such a it's such a great track it's the one Sorry. that when I when I was listening back this week I've listened to this album like honestly about 10 times this week I've just it's been on repeat for the first time Same, in yeah. a long time. You and, um, never tired of it. I know it transport Daily Planet transported me twenty years backwards in time to my, you know where I was at, at the time myself. That type of acoustic guitar playing and that that sound of acoustic guitar, um, I just can't get enough of it. I just love the sound of the guitar. I love the type of playing with the sliding chords sliding up and sliding down. Um, it's really really effective. It reminds me of the Who. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Who the, I don't know if the Who are an influence again or not like when I said about Dylan previously um, but I can definitely hear the Who all over this even Keith Moon style drumming from Hal Blaine um, on this on this track I can see that yep yeah. especially like the, the Who sells out so that was that, again that would be 66 so yeah I can the acoustics on that I can yeah can, I think I think, that, I think that all lines up yeah, yeah. I think that's fair uh, one of the questions that I've got about this record is really like why even are the Wrecking Crew on it? I mean, the, the musicians themselves, sometimes you hear about, you know, session musicians are brought in to do something that, you know, a member of the band can't do, but that doesn't really appear to be the case here. No. I, I, we talked about Arthur Lee being a difficult character, and uh, there was a lot of volatility within the group. Um, so you've got Brian McLean, who I haven't mentioned yet, so he was the kind of the, the, the co-lead of the group, really. Yeah. He's, he's the guy that's singing on Alone Again or An Old Man. Yeah. A lovely, soulful voice. Uh, but I think he felt that he wasn't getting the credit that he was due. He wanted more of his songs on the album. Initially, this was going to be a double album. There was talk they were going to do it. As a yeah, double. the record label just said, no, it's too expensive. Yeah, but we can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so so apparently McLean basically refused to play any of Lee's songs for a bit, or he would like deliberately like sabotage them. Yeah. 
Um, but so but behind the scenes, he he was getting on a lecture, you know, um, you know, do something for me, and the lecture ended up having to say, okay, we'll give you a, a solo album. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the reason for him leaving, really, wasn't it? That, that's the rumour. It's never really been confirmed. That was the rumour. Apparently, once Arthur Lee found out that this was happening, he just said, You're out. thanks very much, you're sacked. Good <laughs> kind of Which is kind of ironic, because they were threatened, obviously, with, I guess, the, the Wrecking Crew threat is, look, if you guys don't do this, yeah. screw the nut, then... Get, yourselves, just, get your act together, otherwise we're going to replace we'll you. replace you. But um, the irony is now that Love are still a a going concern, a touring band. Mm-hmm. Not one of them is an original member. Is that right? I think that's right. I believe that's right now. Yeah. Which is so strange. Like, mm-hmm. so how can how can they? Be, I, mean, I don't <laughs> know if I'd go and see Love in inverted yeah. commas playing Forever Changes when I mean they're probably they're essentially sort of a a good covers band. I mean, I've no. I've listen. I don't want to slag these guys uh, off. I'm sure they're great. Yeah. But um, yeah, it just seems like a sort of strange mm-hmm. uh, situation. Yeah. So McLean left, and then very soon after. I think all the other members, apart from Arthur Lee, yeah. were fired. Uh, there was two of them that had a really bad uh, heroin habit. Apparently, they would hire gear, and then these guys would go off and sell the gear that they'd hired. To for, buy for, gear? To, to buy gear. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, you, you could see how that would go down with Arthur Lee. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Arthur Lee kind of continued to do a lot of recordings with different versions of Love, but it was never really the same. This record, to me, is like... It's the sound of all of that, isn't it? Yeah. But somehow focused into this sort of like really clear sounding. It's got all that chaos going on. Mm-hmm. You can hear it all. But then somehow they've managed to sort of compress all that into something that's just turned out like, you know, a landmark, like a sort of genius moment. Yeah. Um, I do wonder how they did that. The other question I have, because you mentioned it earlier on, and I don't know this, is what's the Manson connection? Is it like, is it in my head, it's like a Tarantino film? It's like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Is, is it that or is it something like, uh, something else? Kind of, yeah. In, in that Love kind of made their name by performing in LA and they perform at these all-nighters and um, they would in- inevitably turn into these jam sessions and one of the guys that ended up getting on stage with them in the early days was Bobby Beausoleil, he's called. So And he, he ended up being one of the, the main... Recruiters for Charles Manson. Wow. Um, and he claims as well that Love were named after him because his nickname was Cupid. So he claims that he claims that. He, I heard a different origin story for their name actually. Because um, I, I don't recall what they were called yeah. before Love. I, I, I don't think Bobby Beausoleil's. Let's not, are, let's not pay attention yeah. to So I'm, to I'm him. sure what you're going to say is right. Well, basically, I think um, they had. They were called the Grass. Grassroots. That's the one. It was Arthur Lee and the Grassroots. Yeah. And were they not called? Um, so you, you know you've got what's the, what's the other name I'm thinking of here? Yeah. So it's the Grass. The Grassroots is the one I'm thinking of. Um, but they saw they saw that another band were already using that name, yeah. another artist. Um, so they come up with something else, and they saw a road sign um, that had L U V Love. It was for a, some sort of product, and then they just thought, well, what about Love? Um, the name Love again is another one that sort of hints it. Flower power and, and yeah. that sort of thing, but this is not so lovely. No. This, this whole record, Again, it feels a little bit sarcastic when when yeah. they use it. Yeah, so it's I, 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 that thing you were saying earlier on about Arthur Lee being the proto punk. Um, you know, I think all of what we've just we've just said in the last few minutes probably does kind of lead you in that direction. Yeah. Um, and and the reason he went to jail in the nineties was because he got very enamoured with guns. He'd just be kind of wielding guns around. Yeah. And apparently he didn't actually 
commit the act that he got done for, but it was kind of like three strikes and you're out. But it was when he, he came out, during the time that he was in prison, it felt like his the legacy of this album in particular just seemed to grow. So you'd suddenly, it suddenly went from something that was like an occult album to something that was suddenly in the in the top 50 of Rolling Stone or whatever, or um, it was very very high in one of the NME lists that I remember seeing when I started buying NME. Yeah. And it just seemed like every. Everybody wanted a piece of him. Once he came out of jail, he thought, "Right, I'm going to get a band on the road." Yeah, and he he got he got he did the whole kind of uh, shebang of of getting um performing this album live with the strings and the yeah. horns and everything like that. And I remember like the Glastonbury 2003, I think it was. It just it was just the ticket. It was just everybody wanted to go and see him and be associated with him. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you remember that in Enemy as well. There was the there was like, you know how because the, they were always keen to do. Uh, like a movement every week just yeah. to try and sell sell bands I, guess, I remember the one with the guy who hit himself with a brick Andrew WK do you remember him? oh yes yeah, yeah they were all over him for a bit but I remember the one that was around love worship was uh, Shroomadelica was a thing <laughs> they were trying to get off the, the ground for a bit there were just the, these bands mainly from Liverpool that all just sounded vaguely psychedelic like the choral yeah, exactly. The Coral were the kind of the big group, the the, the delays and the the, oh, yeah. the bees who who I still really like. Yeah, um, I actually liked the, the Coral were well underrated. I thought. Oh yeah, superb. A great, great. Lots of lots of really good pop yeah. tracks from. But them. I just remember like whenever I'd buy Enemy, they would just always be referencing um, Arfully in Love. Yeah. Um, there was there was like a Heroes issue as well where they got current musicians to interview their heroes and Jack White interviewed Andrew Arfully. It's funny because like the the. It's clear then from what we're saying that the critical reception for this album now mm. like massively outstrips what happened at the time. Oh yeah. Um and, and commercial success at the time very limited. The UK always seemed to love love. So it was twenty four, I think, in the UK, but it was hundred and fifty odd in the, the US. Yeah. So when people say like how of how you know how influential it is to them and stuff you always do I mean, I I'll hold my hands up to this. I wouldn't have listened to this record if I hadn't seen it. Yeah, in something like Enemy, I don't know where I saw it first, but um, so there is a wee bit I think, but people like to, as you were saying, like with the glass and set, everyone's like, oh yes, I, me, I love Arthur Lee, I love you know this album Forever Changes. Um, it's a bit of a bandwagon jumper, but um, at the end of the day, it is it is a masterpiece. It is. Uh, there's no other way it of putting is. it. I watched the, the, they showed that set again when Glastonbury was cancelled last year. They showed it during that weekend where they were just showing loads of coverage. And they showed the full set on BBC Four, and I watched it again. That was just, that's just superb, just so life affirming. So the end of this record, then the track, you set the scene. Um, well, I'm going to set the scene for us here. I think this is maybe the most obviously. <laughs> thank you very much. I think this is the most obviously anti-war track for me. Anyway, includes the lyric, uh, "Fight for what his father thinks is right," um, and maybe this track encompasses. Um, you know, a lot of the features of this album, um, it's written in three sort of distinct movements. Um, so it's got an almost kind of like classical type feel to it. Yeah, it's the longest track. It's Six the most minutes. epic track and the orchestration on it's brilliant. And it goes from being almost like a funeral march at, po- at points to them being this kind of rallying call at the end of the, yeah. this is the time, this is the time. This is the time. So, yeah. So I think we're going to listen to that. We'll, we'll finish off our podcast uh, by listening to that. What about some overall final thoughts? I mean, we've been gushing about this, but I mean, it, it, there's no way around it. This is this is a, a seminal record in rock history. Um, who do we not get 
I mean, what what acts do we not get down the road? What's the knock on effect of not having forever changes? Like, what would have happened if this didn't get made? Um, and you think about you know the, the people who were influenced by it, the, the people who were fans of this record at the time, the Rolling Stones, um, the Doors, and so on. The influence on you know British music. Hendrix. Yeah. Apparently, the Stone so Roses uh, chose John Lickey as their producer because they both agreed this was the greatest album ever made. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that, and I, I actually noticed that the Stone Roses put that down as uh, as a major influence. Um, although I'm not sure I hear it. I, I don't hear it all that much. No, maybe in Remy's drumming sometimes. Yeah, maybe. yeah, that's maybe true. A little that's bit. true. Um, or maybe the maybe the influence of rhythm, the concept of rhythm, and the Rolling, uh, on the Stone Roses, not Rolling Stones. Um, you and know, just the just the idea of swagger as well. So I was lucky enough to see Arthur Lee just before he died. Um, after that, the year after they, they did the tour with the full orchestra, they did a kind of stripped back tour. I guess just because of money for money, probably. Yeah. But um, yeah. So he did. Even then, he still had that presence. He was a quite a formidable character on stage, um, and it was he played some tracks from Forever Changes, but he was also playing some of the stuff from uh, the first two albums and For Sale as well, which came after, which. Which I'm really kind of fond of as well. Tracks like August, yeah, really lent themselves to that style. So, I've got really a crin- I've got a kind of cringy anecdote to finish us off here. Go if you'd like it. to hear that, so the day that Arthur Lee died, um, which I don't know when exactly that was. Do you have that somewhere? It's two thousand and six. Two thousand and six. So the day Arthur Lee died was also coincidentally the day that I played my second ever like proper gig in Glasgow and was playing at a venue called Barras Two. Oh yes, <laughs> I know it well. Basically, the bar area <laughs> upstairs in the bar is, um, and it was with a with with my mates. Basically, we're in a band, and it was the day Arthur Lee had died. And obviously, I'd been listening to Love Then and Forever Changes for a good few years. And I got wind of this, and so there's me. I don't know what age I was at the time. Um, comes on stage, about to play a cacophony of nonsense, and um, I intimate to the audience. Uh, actually, everyone. Uh, Today, Arthur Lee, who was a massive influence on me, uh, died. So this this track is dedicated to Arthur <laughs> Lee. And so earnest. <laughs> so honestly, so earnest was all I had at the uh, time. So um, when when the gig finished, we went down to um, went down to a bar, and some of the people who were in the audience at the, the gig came down to the bar with us. And um, this girl, to this day, I have no idea who this was. She came up to me afterwards and she went, "Man, that was so cool what you said about Arthur Lee." <laughs> so if you're out there. You know, getting contact now cannot. Um, so uh, yeah, so there's my cringy, uh, cringy story about <laughs> my love for Arthur Lee. So when we listen to uh, you set the scene, so thanks, thanks guys for listening to this week's podcast. Yeah, thank you. And if it's been a while since you've listened to the album, do check it out. It never disappoints. It never ages, and it's actually it more prescient now. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, even than it was at the time, because we're we're now living in the age. I know we're about to finish there, but we're now living in the age of. Um, you know, pandemic and, you know, we're living in a time of Brexit, obviously. I don't want to get politically at all. But Arthur Lee's um, sort of curiousness about the world and paranoia and wanting to question things um, feels just as relevant now as it did in 1967. And it speaks to me. I was saying earlier on about, you know, I don't want to talk too much about race and stuff because it's not necessarily something I understand. But um, Arthur Lee's view on the world and him questioning things I mean that speaks to me. That's 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 part of who I am now as well. Maybe I got it partly from listening to this record. Absolutely. So let's listen to you set the scene. Where are you walking on 
Time to die. 